Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Political Science. My name is Heath Brown. Today I'll be talking with Cyril Ghosh, who's the author of The Politics of the American Dream, Democratic Inclusion in Contemporary American Political Culture. I hope that you enjoy the interview. Welcome to New Books in Political Science. My name is Heath Brown, and today I have the real pleasure to talk with Cyril Ghosh about his book, The Politics of the American Dream, Democratic Inclusion in Contemporary American Political Culture. Cyril, how are you doing? Not so bad, Heath. How are you? I'm doing, I'm doing great. Um, uh, I've read the book. Uh, I hope that everyone has the chance to read the book. Before we get to it, maybe you can just give us a little more background on, on yourself, uh, where you've been, where you are, and maybe even where you're heading in the future. Right. Um, but before I start, I want to say thank you for having me on the show. That's the first thing. And the second thing I want to say is that I think you're doing a great job with this website. So, yeah, congratulations to you, too, on that. Well, it's it's a real pleasure, most most importantly, because I get to read books by uh, people like yourself. So thank you very much. Thanks. All right. So a little bit about myself. Uh, I'm uh, originally from India, and where I got a, an undergraduate degree in political science, and proceeded then to get a master's degree in international relations. Uh, after that, I worked as a journalist for a newspaper, and then came to Syracuse University to do a graduate degree here, a PhD. And I will say, I did not, in the end, like in the beginning, I didn't actually start working on the American dream. This was not my original purpose or intent. I, I came here to do something slightly different. I came here to study something very specific. I was interested in the question of how very, very multicultural and pluralistic societies live together as one nation. How do, how do nation states or countries, as it were, make sure that a people feels itself to be a people, like to imagine itself as one community in spite of great diversity within the polity? So this was the original question. And the case studies I had in mind um, were, well, India, and the United States, which are both extremely pluralistic societies. And I know that for a Western audience, often it is the case that we don't think of India as an, as an extremely pluralistic society, but it really is. Um, an example of this is that my mother, for instance, is Catholic, which is a very small religious minority in India. So, and this is just one example. So, I, I was interested in the question of how do, how do Indians manage to feel like as if they belong to one country? And I think in the recent past, we've tried one experiment. We've tried to work with, um, the ideology of Hindu nationalism. And, uh, and I'm critical of it, and, but I don't want to get into it right this second. It's, 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 I want to bracket it out for, for a few minutes. It is something we tried and we failed in doing. And I think in America, we have had some success with keeping a people together, a very diverse people together, using this ideology of the American dream. 
The reason I'm saying all this is because uh, I want to explain how I got interested in the topic. I, you know, I so the original comparative case became um, I just happened to become an Americanist and a theorist really uh, over time. This was not the original purpose. And then I wrote, wrote this dissertation on this topic, which eventually became the book. And uh, you know, when I finished, I've held uh, various teaching positions now. Um, I taught briefly at Reed College in, in Portland, Oregon, and then at Smith College in Northampton, Massachusetts, and then at Mount Holyoke College in South Hadley, Massachusetts. And now, these days, I'm at Wagner College, which is in Staten Island, New York. So it's been quite a lot of moving around. <laughs> well, as someone from New York, I can say that uh, it's always nice to end up in, in New York City where you are now. You know, your your brief uh, bio sh- shows up in so many ways in the book. Um, you know, your background in journalism shows up in your in your writing, and which is a is a very good thing for an academic book, particularly a book of this sort, which is is as political theorists often do, unpacking some abstract concepts and the way in which you write about it. Um, I think as a result of your background is is um, very readable. Um, so, so let's let's talk about the book um, and this idea. Of the American dream that you um, you you explore, um, there are several definitions of the American dream. And before we get to your contention about the definition, um, maybe you could talk a little bit about what some of the popular alternatives are. Um, those other uh, definitions that are out there that that maybe don't quite get to um, uh, what what you're contending uh, the American dream should be defined as. And so, so what else is in there? What was, what was in this territory that you were exploring? Well, so many things. Um, I want to begin by saying that, you know, um, the most interesting concepts that we work with um, in the social sciences, um, they really defy definition of any kind. I mean, they, they are essentially contested concepts. And there are many examples of this, and I can... Uh, give you a few uh, just off the cuff. So, for instance, a word like politics, right? Now, there is really no easy way to define this word, and yet we understand what it means. There is some linguistic uptake when we use the words. People understand what we're saying, sort of. They may not agree with the exact definition we have in mind for that word, but we still manage to somehow communicate with, uh, with that impairment, as it were. Another example of, would be like something uh, like a concept like citizenship or religion or culture or ideology. These words don't actually have specific meanings uh, that everyone understands and everyone is on the same page about. But there are multiple definitions that are in circulation, as it were. And I found uh, this was the great trouble with a phrase or a concept like the American dream. Everyone I talk to feels like they have something to say about it, which I understand. But very often, if you scratch the surface, people disagree about what its basic meanings are, what its deep structures are, and what its constitutive elements are. And this was a problem to start with. So I actually devote an entire chapter to uh, this this exercise in concept formation. Before I begin my book, basically, I say, well, look, we need to understand what it is that we're talking about. And you asked me the question about contesting definitions. So I, uh, to address that more directly, I will say that 
Some people would say, you know, the American dream means that if you work hard, you should succeed. And I'm perfectly happy to entertain the possibility that this is a good definition, except that there will be people who want to buy a lottery and win the lottery, and they will say that that's their American dream. Now, this does not really involve hard work. So this presents a problem because then we, the definition that said, oh, you work hard, you succeed, fails, as it were, in this instance. So other people will say, oh, and most native-born Americans will say this, that the American dream for them means doing better than their parents or to be doing better than some earlier station in life, like, you know, their childhood, to have a bigger house than the one that they grew up, grew up in and so on. Even then, that doesn't capture, let's say, the American dream of an immigrant from, let's say, I don't know, uh, Romania, Kazakhstan, or um, Honduras, who just maybe just wants to live in America, and that is their American dream. So this is the problem. People have multiple and different definitions for the concept. So I, I begin the analysis by saying, okay, what are the things that we can agree uh, must be in place for us to understand that the concept is being used. And that's where I say that we need to focus on what I call the constitutive elements, the basic pillars, the deep structures of the con concept. And those things are, I claim, um, individualism, some idea of equal opportunity or a level playing field, and finally, some idea of um, success or happiness, and I'm happy to talk about uh, these concepts in greater detail, but for now, I just want to say that after having identified these core structures, I, I then come up with a definition, and the definition is in the book, and it's a bit complicated and convoluted, but it's, in my mind, the best one that we can offer, that we can all agree with. Yeah, and, and we could talk. I mean, as you as you say, this this is really at the heart of what you try to do, and so we we can't kind of get unpack this completely, but we can unpack some parts of this and some parts that I think uh, do resonate with people, and but in uh, uh, contested ways. So Horatio Alger, um, tell us a little bit about this narrative and and its place in the development of the American dream, because if um, you ask some people, uh, probably of a certain age. Um, they would connect the American dream to Horatio Alger. Um, but, but many people do that without really knowing exactly who Horatio Alger was. And so maybe you can just tell us a little bit about this sort of side of the development, the historical development of the American dream. Uh, yeah, I'd be happy to. But I actually want to do something else first. I want to actually, I want to actually uh, point out, uh, unusually for someone who works in my field, I, I want to point out a few numbers. I, mm -hmm. because I think that that will throw into sharper relief why we need to study this concept in, particularly within the discipline of political science, which I don't think we do sufficiently. And after having done that, I'm happy to get to the, the Horatio Alger question. And, but if you will allow me to do this, please. Please, oh, by all means. So, so I, I, I went back and um, I, I went and counted. I counted the number of times this word or this phrase appears in American political talk in the last century. The reason why I did this is because I wanted to point out that something happens um, 
is in the late 60s. Something happens at a specific time in uh, uh, contemporary American history when political leaders decide to speak of the American dream in uh, there's a surge, like people are talking about it, like, you know, incessantly in the last few decades. And the numbers that I want to point out are this. So I went back and counted the number of times the word dream appears in three genres or species of political talk. And those genres are presidential inaugural, State of the Union messages, and party platforms, both Democrat and Republican. And I found the the numbers to be astounding. So if you count the number of times the word dream is used in these speeches, between 1900 and 1964, the word appears twice in presidential inaugural, six times in State of the Union messages, and four times in party platforms, for a total of about 12 occurrences between 1900 and 1964. Mm -hmm. But from the period 1965 to 2010, if you count the numbers, they change dramatically. So in presidential inaugurals, uh, the the word is referred to 27 times as opposed to twice. In State of of the Union messages, um, it appears 91 times as opposed to six times. And in party platforms, both Democrat and Republican, the word appears 112 times as opposed to four times between 1900 and 1964. If you add up all these numbers, it looks like the word dream appears 230 times between 1965 and 2010. This is as opposed to 12 times between 1900 and 1964. Now, I think this is a major and dramatic surge. And uh, because this is an audio podcast, I can't show you the graph that uh, that points out this surge. It, it's fascinating to look at it visually, how the number of times we have been referring to the dream in political talk has changed since the mid-60s. And I have what I offer um, as a one plausible explanation for this change, but I'll get to that in a, in a second. So the point I'm trying to make right now is that we need to understand what's going on. We need to understand why political elites talk about this word so much. And while I'm on the, on the subject, I also want to say uh, that, you know, in the Democratic National Convention uh, uh, last year, um, I call them the American Dream Choir. Uh, I say this for a reason. So uh, I went back and counted the number of t- a number of times the word dream appeared and in su- some of the speeches. And as it turns out, um, in Deval Patrick's speech, the word appears seven times. In Michelle Obama's speech, it appears seven times. In Bill Clinton's speech, it appears three times. And in Julian Castro's speech, it appears a whopping 11 times in one speech. There is something going on there. And, I, um, and I'm happy to explain what it is that it does. You know, what do you attribute this to? What's the, is this a linguistic change, simply the appearance of an of a idea that didn't appear in the past? Or is there something more going on? I actually think that there is something very specific going on in the mid-60s. And... Um, What I claim in the book is that um, the American dream becomes, over time, starting with basically the Johnson administration, 
a, a model of, of democratic inclusion in America. I say this for a reason. So, 1960s, uh, in 64, we have the Civil Rights Act, the Voting Rights Act in 65. Uh, a lot is changing. It's the beginning of what we call the, um, the New Left. It is the beginning of a set of identity politics-based social movements. Now, it, the Civil Rights Movement sets into motion um, the, the movement for women's rights, second-wave feminism, uh, the movement for Americans with disabilities, gays and lesbians, all kinds of minority groups start to argue for more and more rights starting in the mid-60s. That's one piece of this. The other piece of this is what I call open immigration. So in 1965, we have the Hart-Seller Act, which opens up immigration without racial quotas in America, and with the consequence that now we have immigrants um, a specific, two specific types of immigrants who come in broadly, they're Latinos and Asians. So starting the mid-60s, we have been in a situation where the polity is accepting more and more immigrants of color, but not only that, we are also having a situation where lots of minority groups are asserting themselves as, as voting blocks, as people with rights and so so this increased heterogeneity, I think, is something that is problematic for political leaders, especially on the national level, to target as, as, as a mass political constituency. So I think that leaders like to use the rhetoric of the American dream to appeal broadly across these identity groups and across these immigrant groups because immigrants eventually naturalize most often, and then they have kids who are going to be citizens and they are going to vote. So I think that this, this is a model of democratic inclusion that political leaders are falling back upon, and I think it's a very unique and exceptional model, and it's, I, I make the claim that, that it's unique and exceptional because I compare it to uh, a couple of other models which, which uh, present themselves in countries like, say, on the one hand, Britain and Canada, and on the other, France. And I'm happy to talk about that, too, um, uh, if you like. Yeah, and, and not to get off on too much of a, a tangent, because um, you know, your, your book is not a book of um, political behavior, but I wonder if you, you've thought about whether, you know, given this change in federal policy and immigration policy in the 1960s, which led to uh, large increases in, in immigration, uh, into the U.S., do you suppose that, that um, the immigrant experience comes with the American dream? Is, is the American dream one that the immigrant brings to their arrival in the U.S., or is that what the arrival is all about? Is that part of the assimilation? Um, and I'm asking you to, to speculate, because this isn't exactly what you studied in the book, but it seems to me to be related to this, uh, point that you make. Um, is, it, is it a pre-existing condition that, that motivates people to come to the, to, to emigrate to the U.S.? Or is it kind of that, that first thing that you get as you go through the process of integration into the community? Well, I actually think, and since you asked me to speculate, I will. I, I, I actually think that um, both of those things together is a possibility, as in um, I think that the American dream transcends borders. And even if the actual language of the American dream may not be used in certain developing countries, the idea of it, the idea of, of having an opportunity to live life on your own terms or having 
having widespread opportunity in general, this structures the imagination of many migrants, I think, and, and, and most migration happens for economic reasons, and we know this, and even undocumented workers for, uh, come here for basically economic reasons. We know this because, you know, the number of undocumented workers in this country has actually gone down since the, 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 fi the financial crisis, partly because there's n not that much money floating around. And I think that people do come here with the idea that they will live a full life, a better life, and so on. But having said that, I also want to say two things. One is that once they come here, these immigrants um, assimilate, as it were, most of them do, and fall in line with these broad values of American society, that yes, you should work hard and that should be the pathway to success. I think that does happen. But I don't want to be misunderstood as saying that it's only immigrants that have the American dream because if you look at the public opinion data, virtually everyone in America believes in the dream, even though those people who will say that they're extremely cynical, that they think that the dream is an illusion, that it's some kind of a myth, some kind of a falsehood. If you scratch the surface, if you ask one or two probing questions, it turns out Practically everyone affirms that, yes, we should be a country where you work hard and you succeed. And most people are hopeful that their offspring, the next generation, will have chances better than the ones they had. I do think that this is going on. And this has re remained stable for decades. Most people have these feelings, both immigrants and native-born and naturalized citizens, everyone. Like, you know, it's, it's broad and widely shared. Yeah. In the book, you you confront um, Samuel Huntington. You really <laughs> confront him head on, and it's not unrelated to, to what we've just been talking about. So what's your case that Huntington's project is, is largely wrong? Well, okay, many things. I think Samuel Huntington is uh, um, absolutely accurate in his description of American politics in his 1981 book. Um, American Politics, The Promise of Disharmony. It's an excellent book, um, and I, I have gained a lot from reading it. But over time, I think he's changed his mind about exactly what the American creed is and what American national identity is and is supposed to be. Now, one of the claims he makes is that American national identity historically has been well, how shall I say this, white, Anglo-Saxon, Anglophone, and Christian Protestant, basically. And this is under, to use his language, he says this is under assault from um, Hispanic migrants or Latino immigrants who are mainly Spanish-speaking, mainly Catholic, and mainly non-white. And um, the insinuation is that this is a loss of traditional American national identity, and although he doesn't explicitly say this, the full implication that this is a bad thing uh, is pervasive throughout the text, both in the article, The Hispanic Challenge, and the book, Who Are We?, that you are referring to. Now, I think that he's wrong for multiple reasons, um, but he's also right, I think, about one thing. And I, I'm in agreement with him when he says that the nation was founded um, if we bracket out the genocide of, of the people who lived here before the Puritan immigrants came here, this nation was founded as a white Anglophone, Anglo-Saxon Protestant culture. It's true. I do think this is the case. Now, but to go from that assertion and then to say that just because this has been the case in the past, 
this ought to remain the case in the future is a logic that I don't necessarily follow. I don't see how it follows that just because something has been the case, it ought to remain the case. Now, there are various examples of this. I mean, we've changed a lot, a lot of practices and institutions, like, I don't know, the coverture laws, which uh, claimed that women were the property of their husbands. We've changed the institutions of slavery, of Jim Crow laws, about anti-miscegenation laws, um, all kinds of things. Uh, all kinds of traditions have changed and uh, not necessarily for the worse. So I don't see this as a problem, but he does, or he did. Um, and I, and I, I find this uh, misguided at best. Uh, so that's the first thing. The second thing I want to say is that, you know, it's really not about a philo- taking a philosophical position on the, the changing demographics of American society. What is more urgently required is some sense of what we're going to do with the trajectories of change, because it's quite obvious that the country is becoming bilingual, it's becoming increasingly more multicultural than it ever has been before. So I think the more urgent question is how do we include these people who are coming in and the country's internal diversity, how do we include these people in a way that is not disruptive for the rest of the people? And that, I think, is the more important question But it's a practical question. It's not a philosophical or normative question like, oh, should Hispanics come into this country? And and I think his insistence on treating this as a normative question is uh, is patently absurd, I think. But so those are some of the things I want to say in relation to what he has to say. Yeah, and let's look forward a little bit um, and 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 take uh, maybe where your book ends up. You know, your your conclusions. And project forward a bit about about what the uh, vibrancy of the American dream will be in the future. Um, what would you offer as as major takeaways from the book, uh, uh, major contributions that can uh, point us in, in a direction, either in terms of scholarship or or ways in which we can better understand or incorporate the American dream in an authentic way that is that is um, uh, consistent with sort of what your research says. Well, many things. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, the, I, I want to refer back to something I was saying about the Democratic National Convention, and I think the Democratic yeah. Party is doing an exceedingly good job in offering the American dream as a rhetoric of inclusion, and here's why I say this. It is not a coincidence that this um, that uh, Michelle Obama, Javal Patrick, Julian Castro, all of these people are singing praises of the American dream. There is something going on. I think the Democratic Party is very, has now basically captured in the past two elect, uh, presidential election cycles most minority groups in this country, and there's just no running away from this. Here are some numbers, and I know I work in theory mostly, but I, I also like numbers, and I'll give you some numbers to explain some of the things that are going on. So, so in, 20, in the 2012 presidential elections, 28% of the electorate was non-white. 80% of that group voted for Barack Obama. And according to exit polls, 71% of Latinos, 73% of Asians, 69% of Jews, 93% of Blacks, 55% women, 76% gays and lesbians, and 60% young adults voted solidly for the Democratic Party. 
And among Hispanics, 76% women and 74% of young people voted for Obama. Now, I'm saying all this for a reason. I think it relates to the future trajectory of the American dream. I, I, or at least it's incorporation in political talk. I, I think that whichever party captures or manages to control this particular rhetorical trope will have the votes of all these minority groups. I do think that's what's going to happen. And I think in this, the Democratic Party has a solid advantage over the Republican Party. That's one thing. The second thing is that as the country becomes more and more heterogeneous, I think there will be an increased need for a rhetoric of democratic inclusion. And I think the specific ideology of the American dream is here to stay for a while at least. And I say this because I've been looking at some data on how multicultural we are becoming. And again, here are some numbers. So... um, Latinos are projected to be 26% of the total population by 2050. There are currently 53 million Hispanics who comprise 17% of the total population. 24 million Hispanic immigrants arrived in the past four decades alone. By 2030, 40 million Latinos will be eligible to vote, which is up from 23.7 million right now. This is just speaking of Latinos. Now, there's all kinds of other groups that are coming in also as immigrants, and these are powerful voting blocks, and they will be and become more so in the, in the upcoming decades. In this context, I think it will become increasingly vital to appeal to everyone at the same time, because you don't want to exclude anyone, any political constituency, from your rhetoric. And I think, particularly with the Democratic this, this trope, this rhetorical trope, is here to stay for a bit, I think. And, um, uh, yeah, that's, um, I don't know if that sufficiently answers your question. No, that's, that's, that's wonderful. And, you know, you allude to, to all of these other sides of your uh, methodological background and other interests. So looking ahead in terms of your own scholarship and writing, uh, what's next? This book recently came out. Uh, do you have a, a new project that's, uh, related to this? Yes, actually. Or do you have a new project that is taking you in another direction? Maybe you can give us a highlight of what's to come. Well, um, I, I'm happy to do it, but I just remembered that you asked me a question about Horatio Alger, and I never got to it, but I guess it doesn't matter. I will say, I, I will say what I, what, what, what I find, something that, that I find fascinating coming out of, uh, this research. And, and I say quite clearly in the book that I, by no stretch of the imagination do I think that what I've written on the ideology of the American dream is some kind of a final word on the topic. In fact, I think that I just hope that it's a conceptual framework that I offer that, you know, that other people and me, hopefully, that other people can work with and improve upon and build upon. And I think scholarship works like that. And and I really do hope that lots of people start studying the American dream within the discipline of political science and with the urgency that I feel and experience about the topic. Now, that's the first thing. Now, second, I want to say that there is something that I say in my work that, um, that, um, is, that draws attention to, and this relates to the Alger question, that, that draws attention to something that has re- remained stable across the history of the nation. And that specific thing is a triangular relationship 
between and among three ideals. One is work, the other is virtue, and the third one is happiness, some form of happiness. And I think the relationship between work and virtue and happiness presents itself not just in the American dream, but also in various nodes or historical nodes before the, the contemporary American dream. Say, for instance, in the Horatio Alger ethic, in the Protestant ethic, in the founding, and all the way back to the days of the early republic in the Puritan imagination. I think that the same stable bedrock structure has remained stable. Now, for Puritans, of course, happiness meant happiness in heaven. This has changed over time, obviously, but, but the core structure has remained st stable throughout the history of the, of the nation. And I find it incredible that Americans, and the data shows this too, that Americans are obsessed with work. They are one of the most hardworking people across all advanced economies. And they associate work with virtue. And yet, there is one domain in which this association breaks down, and that domain is the one relating to undocumented workers or illegal immigrants, if you like. And I think Americans, particularly uh, uh, native-born uh, Americans, but also naturalized citizens, routinely associate illegal immigration or undocumented workers uh, with having a lack of virtue. And I don't understand that. And I think that if and Judith Schrar makes the case that, you know, in this country, American citizenship is grounded on two basic things. One is the right to vote, and the second is the right to an earning, an income from work. And I think she's right about that. And I find it incredible that we associate so much, um, we, uh, we give, we assign so much value to work, and we associate it with virtue, and yet, when undocumented workers are trying to earn an honest living, they, we don't like them. Some of us, at least, don't like them. And we find them to be, you know, vicious as opposed to virtuous. And I find this extraordinary. And I want to explore this question and a related question, uh, which is that if indeed American citizenship is grounded in the right to vote and in the right to earn a living, can we then say that there is a fundamental, if not constitutional, right to employment? And I don't want to use the phrase right to work because it's highly politicized. I don't want to use that phrase. But is there, could we find in the penumbras of the Constitution, perhaps, if you like, a constitutional right to employment, to right to a, a living wage? And this is a question I would like to explore in, in, in my most immediate next the research project. Well, I, I look forward. For, I look forward to that. Cyril um, Ghosh is the author of *The Politics of the American Dream: uh, Democratic Inclusion in Contemporary American Political Culture*. The book was recently published by Palgrave Macmillan. is available widely their website and also on Amazon. Cyril, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks so much, Keith.